is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Welcome to Podship Earth. I'm not a scientist. I don't know the science behind climate change. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a scientist, and I've got the grades to prove it. The I'm not a scientist line has become an old standard in the climate deniers playbook. But what has gotten less attention is the I am a citizen scientist movement. What started back in the 1900s with the first national bird count is now a global force for change. Armed with a smartphone, millions of citizen scientists are recording the world around them and crowdsourcing the data to highlight small changes that often add up to big patterns. Next week's total solar eclipse might be the most studied disappearance of the sun ever. That's thanks in part to legions of citizen scientists. NASA and other institutions are recruiting volunteers. Pull out your mobile phone when you see a mosquito around you and identify the microphone, point it at the mosquito and make a sound recording. Even about a second's worth of sound from a mosquito is good enough. Go to abuzz.stanford.edu and upload that file on our website. Citizen Science has been around a while now. It's a chance for amateurs to get involved with volunteering and for scientists to get help with collecting data. Respect for science is under attack by those who have a financial stake in industries that harm human health and the environment. Citizen science provides data from so many sources that the conclusions are much harder for industry to refute or ignore. By reframing how scientific questions are framed, citizen scientists are democratizing and flattening academic ivory towers. Citizen science is also arming low-income communities with real-time data on the extent of air, water, and soil pollution. At the end of the show, I'll let you know how you can get involved today. On this week's show, I'll talk with five citizen scientists who are at the forefront of this growing movement. Mary Ellen Hannibal is the author of Citizen Science, Searching for Heroes and Hope in the Age of Extinction. Mary Ellen is a regular contributor on science and the environment to Bay Nature Magazine, the San Francisco Chronicle, the New York Times, Esquire, and the Yoga Journal. Her other two books are Evidence of Evolution and The Spine of the Continent. What is citizen science? Well, Jared, today, citizen science is regular people using smartphone technology or even just taking data points, making observations that are put all together to make a picture of what is happening in a place uh, over time, most frequently with a particular species like an animal or a plant or uh, clean water or air within context. And the context is place, geography, you know, places we love, places we see, places we live, places we visit, places we'll never see. But this is the heart of, uh, of how life unfolds on Earth has to do with place. I love that because for me, place is the missing part of the environmental movement. We've abstracted to a level that people, people the reason people become environmentalists um, and did in the 1970s and before because they wanted to protect a special place, a river, a mountain, a stream, uh, a meadow. And now we just talk about abstraction. So I love that you're bringing us back to place. So in a sense, we all have to love our place. And our place is not only this spot where we're sitting right now in our home, but uh, the whole planet. 
Mary Ellen, tell us about how citizen science platforms like iNaturalist are helping change the way we see nature. If you are taking a walk today and you see a bee on a flower and you take a photograph of that on iNaturalist, and iNaturalist is a citizen science app that puts the date, the time, the latitude, and the longitude with your picture and then sends it through a whole vetting process, you have captured a moment in time and place and an instance of life, that that bee and that flower, that will never come again. So you you make the most special contribution because it will never, it is not repeatable. I like that. And when we add them all together of all of these instances of what we see, where and when, we start to get a picture of what's really happening in the globe. We're going to let a lot of plants and animals go extinct and we're going to lose a lot of animals. We're already losing them. But even worse than extinction is this massive reduction in the bodies of plants and animals that's going on. So in the last 40 years, we've lost over 1 billion birds. So those are species that in themselves may not be going extinct, but there's this vast reduction in their numbers. And across the board... So a billion less birds. In, this 40, is, in 40 years. Okay, so a billion less birds in 40 years is something no one ever talks about. No. I mean, we, we almost like, we don't... It isn't a headline until the white rhino is completely extinct. And it's the same with other plants and other animals. So I think we've lost something like 40% of all vertebrate-bodied animals also in the last 40 years. And, and this has made headlines in science and in nature. So in the scientific publications. In the but you read those. But for the average person, right. the average headlines, they're not reading that there's 40% less it gets It gets little notices. I always try to to make the positive part of loving nature and experiencing nature the the, the forward thing. Um, because that's how I get through, really. I When I'm outside taking an observation of an animal or a plant, I feel better. I feel connected. I'm noticing you, plant. I'm noticing you, animal. I'm noticing you see anemone sitting there in your crazy glob of gelatinous goo in the tide pool, this incredibly beautiful, beautiful world. I am witnessing you. I am witnessing you, and that's what I can do. And, you know, I think when we bring our kids up to, we ask them to bear witness to their own souls. That's what we want them to do to unfold their own destinies. Uh, I believe everybody's going to have to come to some some kind of parody with nature. So I just, I try to keep it very positive, but I also don't lie to them. So how does citizen science help us understand this reduction in the number of species and extinction of species? How, what is the role that citizen science plays? So one of the major, probably the major impediment that we have to really knowing uh, how we can protect plants and animals and help them keep on keeping on is that we really don't know where they are in what numbers when. You have to have 5, 10, 15, 20 years of data. So if you start doing that and having people making observations and collecting data on all sorts of species, on seabirds and on uh, songbirds, hummingbirds, uh, when are the flowers blooming? When are they blooming in the Mississippi or in Maine? You start to be able to get a picture of how things are interacting and how the populations are faring. This week, I got to witness citizen science in action. I met up with Bill Keener and his buddy Izzy, who monitor harbor porpoises from the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. 
They are armed with binoculars and huge telephoto lenses to record the harbour porpoises as they feed on fish during the outgoing tide. Just as I arrived, the sightings began. There's a harbour porpoise right there. You can see the rings in the water right there. That's where they just surfaced. So we see harbour seals here every time we come out on the bridge. We also see harbour porpoises, but the, the seals will sit and float at the surface, whereas these porpoises will just continue travelling. All right, there we go, one, two, three. And often mothers with babies uh, right next to them. The babies are born in June, so right now they're pretty old and they can be independent and move away from mom a little bit. So Izzy, how long have you been doing this? Well, from the bridge 2010, but I've been studying harbor porpoises here in the Bay Area since 1982. And what first attracted you to these little creatures? Well, you know, I, I, um, I'm a surfer, and I, 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 like the, I love the ocean, I like the animals inside the ocean. So on an average day, we'll see, I don't know, 20 or 20, 25, 30 porpoises coming by us. So on good days, we can see over 100. I, I got 100 two weeks ago. I counted 100 in two hours standing on the bridge, which is it's really an amazing wildlife watching platform, and people just don't realize it. We need citizen science, because we can't cover all this vast area of the cetaceans, the marine mammals that we're studying. As if there's development along the, at the bay shore, along San Francisco shoreline, they need that information because before we came along and published on it, people uh, didn't have any proof that, oh, we've got to take into account there's harbor porpoises in the area if we're going to construct a new ferry terminal or do something along the bay. So Izzy, how many harbor porpoises did we see? Or is it harbor porpoise? It's harbor porpoise. Okay. And uh, we saw 33 today. Nice. That's a good day. It's a good day. Bill and I left the bridge to find somewhere quieter to talk. The Golden Gate Bridge is really an amazing wildlife observatory, a great platform for viewing birds and marine mammals. And sometimes I've even seen um, sharks and fish swimming by, and uh, it's, fa- it's really fantastic. So how did you get involved in, in cetacean marine mammal watching and research? So I was a, a weekend uh, marine mammalogist. And uh, really, I, I work with a lot of great people. So I had really good mentors, uh, professors of marine mammalogy at San Francisco State and other people that had uh, been working in the field for a long time. So I just fell in with them and did what I could on uh, weekends or holidays. How, how often do you get out on the bridge to, to monitor harbor porpoises? So we try to get out a couple, at least two or three times a week. We'll spend a couple hours around high tide uh, focusing on trying to track, count, and photograph every porpoise that we see going by. And the different scarring tissue, the different pigmentation allows you to come up with individual markers? and They'll have a line scar, maybe from a fishing gear, or they'll have a shark bite or some other mark on them that we can consistently follow over time. So we've tracked actually hundreds of individual porpoises uh, over time this way, some of them for several years in a row. Uh, uh, there's one that's almost all white, that's to, uh, uh, almost an albino, and uh, we can follow that one quite easily. You can recognize it from a half a mile away. So, Bill, people that are just beginning this journey, they're either bird watchers or they see wildlife in their neighborhood and they want to catalog it. How should they go about getting more involved? Either 
putting their uh, sightings into something like iNaturalist, which the California uh, uh, Academy of Sciences uh, hosts. Uh, and then uh, I can look at that, too. So I can go into iNaturalist, see where someone has seen a dolphin, and then I can contact that person directly and say, hey, give me your photos. I want to look at it more carefully. There's probably 20 different people that we're relying on right now just for bottlenose dolphin uh, fin images. So, Bill, you clearly have passion for this. What keeps you going day in, day out? Really understanding that animals are individuals. So, for instance, one of the things we're doing on the Golden Gate Bridge is looking at their social life for the first time because it's one of the best places in the world to look at porpoises. And we're looking at their foraging techniques. So they were gone for about 65 years until about 2008 when we uh, first saw them again. And that's when we determined to do a study to learn more about them. Like, why did they come back? Well, they came back because there's more fish in the bay now. And that's really an amazing environmental success story is that all that work in cleaning the bay and in preventing industrial pollution from running into the bay in municipal sewage uh, being uh, treated as a young lad in uh, San Francisco. I remember going across the Bay Bridge in the 1950s and it would stink like uh, a cesspool then because there was raw sewage flowing into the bay. Well, that's all changed now, starting with grassroots movements like Save the Bay in the 1960s and then the Clean Water Act. And it's so much cleaner now. It's a really tremendous environmental success story. And our motto is, if you clean it, they will come. We've been speaking with Bill Keener. Bill, thank you so much. Thank you, Jared. And now a word from our sponsor, Design Crowd. I just completed through hiking the Pacific Crest Trail and was sitting at home having a really hard time adjusting to life back in the city when out of the blue, I got a call from my cousin David from LA. Do you want to make a podcast? After talking to David, I knew there was a long journey ahead. In times when I need inspiration, I think of my great uncle Ben Becker, who was a US boxing coach for the 1960s Olympics in Rome. Ben guided Muhammad Ali, who was then called Cassius Clay, to win the gold medal. And in the process, they became lifelong friends. I'm going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. George can't hit what his hands can't see. I realized that if Podship Earth was going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee, I needed a kick-ass logo. I thought it would be easy, but I couldn't seem to translate my ideas onto the page. So I looked up the designs I liked best. Turns out the iconic 1966 Bob Dylan album cover with his curly hair colored to look like an LSD trip and the more staid I Love New York ads were all created by legendary designer Milton Glaser. So I turned to Milton for some advice on how to make the perfect Podship Earth logo. Well, you have to work like hell. Put in your 10,000 hours. And after that, simply don't get stuck in your own belief system. Continue to understand the issue is not about style or what's going on at the moment, but things can be deeper and more profound and more influential. Wow. I guess Milton has read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. But seriously, 10,000 hours of work. I barely have enough time to drink three cups of PG Tips tea every morning. I could allocate about 10 hours to mastering my logo design skills. With that in mind, I realized I needed a different approach. I found Design Crowd, a website that lets you crowdsource logos, websites, print, and graphic designs from professionals worldwide. I signed on and launched my project. I received 121 logos from 37 designers from around the world. It was an amazing experience to be able to see so many different takes on my idea. Each one gave me a better sense of what I wanted. 
Eventually, I found a design that spoke to me. It was by Kent from Art Tank. We emailed each day and refined the logo until it was finished. I've worked with many high-end design firms over the years, and it's really hard to get the right fit the first or even the second time around. The funnest part of Design Crowd is that you get to pick and choose before making a decision. It's crowdsourcing at its best. My advice? Take advantage of Design Crowd and leave art to the professionals and focus on all the other things you'll need to get your idea off the ground. To save up to $100 when you start your next project, go to designcrowd.com slash podship. That's designcrowd.com slash podship. Or simply enter the discount code podship when posting a project on Design Crowd. My next project with Design Crowd will be working on the Podship Earth poster. And now back to our conversation with Mary Ellen Hannibal about citizen science. So science is about observations, right? I mean, observing empirically the world around us and then hopefully being able to replicate that if you need to. Um, So citizen science seems like a way of networking those observations. So we're not just relying on bits of information that a few scientists can get one place, now you can scale it across the globe. That that seems hopeful and exciting. We've had a sea star wasting syndrome along the whole entire west coast of North America, from Alaska down to Mexico. Now, okay, that's a huge thing. All these sea stars have died over the last five years. So they've been removed from the ecosystem. Nobody really knows why that's happened. They're starting to come back in some places. But if you want to ask the question, what's the impact on the ecosystem, how many, how many scientists can, do you need to be able to monitor and do an experiment along the entire west coast of North America? Well, you can't. A you, lot. You need thousands and thousands of people. So you need citizen science. One question that I've been meaning to ask you is whether citizen scientists produce good quality data. There's been like 50 studies of whether citizen science collected data is as good as professionally collected data. And the overwhelming um, answer to that is that citizen science collected data is often of a higher quality. That's awesome. But part of this is, <laughs> due, is part of this is due to the smart smartphone technology. Mm. So there's no question, you know, there's no getting it wrong because the 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 smartphone gives you the date, the time, the latitude, and the longitude. So it's fixing your observation in time and space. Just knowing that citizen science is often of a higher quality, that makes me feel good for citizen science. It's good. There is a whole really huge and important dimension of citizen science, which is sometimes called community science or participatory research. The idea is that we question who, what is science, what is knowledge, who gets to say what it is, what is it for. So in the realm of like indigenous or tribal peoples, this is a big area where community science or citizen science is uh, the tribal people, they have years, they have thousands of years of what sometimes is called traditional ecological knowledge. They have seen and know um, and have worked with landscapes and seascapes for thousands of years. So they have a lot of information about how the cycles work. Uh, and they they know more quite often than any scientist could ever discover even in a long career. So, and then they've been, you know, completely disrupted from their their traditional ways quite often and they want to get back to their traditional ways and we also need to learn from them because they know a lot more than than the rest of us do about how to live healthily on the land so another place where this kind of idea of 
let the question or the experiment start with the community is a social justice issue like in underserved communities. Low-income communities and communities of color are more likely to play host to polluting industries and be burdened with historic contamination. These same communities are often ignored by state and local governments whose job it is to monitor environmental health indicators. That's where citizen science comes in. 20 years ago, Margaret Gordon and Brian Beveridge started the West Oakland Environmental Indicators Project, and they've been blazing a trail ever since. Their community-based project has collaborated with local residents, universities, computer companies, and foundations to get real-time monitors installed so that an accurate pollution profile for their neighborhood can be established and then reduced. So where are we, Margaret? Tell us exactly where we're at. First of all, I'm 71 years old. My name is Miss Margaret now. I love that. Miss Margaret, I apologize. <laughs> all right. We're in West Oakland, um, behind the West Oakland BART station, block, about a block and a half on 5th Street in Mandela. We're at the West Oakland Environmental Indicators Office. So, Miss Margaret, tell us how it all began. Well, it started in, uh, like, 1998. I am one of the first volunteers of, of, of the community that was giving education and orientation about how to use indicators. Indicators about, is about measuring things, um, items, issues, concerns. Residents came together, and some of us stayed together, and that's how we were able to develop the West Oakland Environmental Indicators Project. We did not have an environmental justice uh, organization in West Oakland that dealt with water, air, and soil issues at that time. So we were in the right place at the right time as residents, an organization that was was centered around community leading a process in research and data collection and not just being part of an emotional process, emotional engagement around air, water, and soil. And what, tell us about this neighborhood. Why would you need to monitor the air, water, and soil? We also have had groundwater being polluted from our toxics, and then we have a port of Oakland right up next to the neighborhood also. Okay, well, West Oakland is a community that's surrounded by three freeways, 980, 580, and 880. And with that, uh, we have a concentration of trucks, trains, and ships, and more trucks than anything from the Port of Oakland. So we can have on an average anywhere from 22,000 to 44,000 truck trips a day. And we've been, West Oakland Environmental Indicators has been the forefront of developing designated truck routes, doing air monitoring, doing education to truck drivers about idling, doing, being engaged about upgrading trucks, and also recently I've been able to get one of the trucking companies to have an electric truck. We have one out of seven children on the average being going to the emergency hospital for respiratory problems. So, Brian, how did you end up teaming up with Miss Margaret? Oh, I kind of got a... a uh, education when I moved to the neighborhood. When <clears throat> I came here in 1999, our goal was to build something solid and sustainable in this community that, it, that was addressing issues of environmental justice. Miss Margaret, what does citizen science mean to you? The citizen science being from bottom up, really bottom up engagement and learning 
the systems and how to navigate the technical and technology from the impacted residents' perspective. So we've been in the forefront of identifying these issues or impacts into the community and then taking them to regulatory agencies and working with public health to come up with policy. Talk a little bit about your partnerships with technology companies. I remember with the Backpack Project, maybe 10 years ago when I visited you, you're doing it with Intel, you've worked with Google. Tell us about how those collaborations work and, and what they bring you. There's tremendous power in for the community in having professional assistance in doing this work. Um, the biggest challenge is making sure that the agenda of the corporation, the agency, the, the university is intended to, cre to create data that can be used for action. Uh, a lot of things are done for the sake of better understanding, but what communities need are, is action data. We get data that we can use to, to ask better questions about what's going on in our community, and we, we become incrementally more knowledgeable and more powerful. Brian, do you think five years from now we'll all be carrying around phones that have air quality and other kinds of measurement data in them? We'll definitely be carrying around phones that have apps in them to, that get us directly to massive databases of almost ubiquitous sensor networks so that you don't have to write a research grant and you know spend $500,000 and find a bunch of partners so that you can get data. You can simply look at a reference somewhere and know what you're breathing, know what's in your water. The cost and quality of uh, environmental sensors is, uh, the cost is dropping fast and the quality is going up fast. So Ms. Margaret, when you go in, you meet with the, the air regulators, the water regulators, the state of California, like, then generally they're pretty scared when Miss Margaret's coming because you're <laughs> like you're pretty you're tenacious you're smart like now you've got citizen science behind you does does that also give you some extra credibility at the table? Yes, it does give you some credibility because my first indication is that prove me wrong, prove that what we found is not credible, prove that what we found is not uh, our impact. Disprove it. And so far, we have not in 20 years had a regulatory agency to say that we were not on track. If there are other communities out there that are looking to West Oakland and you and Brian as a model, like how should they start? Well, we start counting things. Like I said, with the indicators, we start counting things and kept going deeper and deeper into the of analyzing what were those things. So, for instance, um, we had. Uh, how many trucks was coming through there? So we had, we did a traffic sur survey. We trained residents to stand on the corners and count trucks based on the characterization of a truck. And we did the training beforehand, and we have done this several different times, not only in West Oakland, but other communities showed how to do their own truck traffic study. There are small groups like ours who have done this kind of community-based science work. And I think that's the first step is, you know, get online, look up some things like community-based action research, uh, community air monitoring, community environmental science. 
you'll start to see groups that are doing it. Call them up. Nobody's going to hang up on you, right? All of us want to help other people and build this work. Any final thoughts, Miss Margaret? It's work. There's a lot of work, dedication, commitment. Um, you miss birthdays, graduations, <laughs> but it has been a total labor of love. My family seemed to understand you have to be in the middle of wanting to learn how to do this correctly and, and with a positive spin on it for the people that are now and for the future. Thank you, Ms. Margaret. Brian? Oh, I think Margaret summed it up. You have to have a curiosity. I, I think that's something that Ms. Margaret and I share. We come from very different backgrounds. Um, but we are both, uh, neither of us are scientists, but we are both incredibly curious. And um, that curiosity takes us down a lot of paths that we might not have thought about. It's been really rewarding for me to get into it. We've been speaking with Miss Margaret Gordon and Brian Beveridge. Thank you both. You're Thank welcome. you. Thank Pleasure. you. Back in the studio, Mary Ellen said she had a question for me. So I understand that you, um, you fairly recently, you did the Pacific Coast crest. Crest. I wish it was on the coast, um, because then I would have seen the ocean. But you never get to see the ocean. So, over that period of time. How many months was it? Um, four and a half months. So from what month to what month? Um, from May 9th to September 19th. So May to September, and you know, and how many miles did you go? 2,665. So I'm imagining, though, that you probably noticed different kinds of species at different elevations. Yeah, right? that was my favorite thing. So I, the thing I loved the most was seeing nature on the trail and the smell of nature. The It was Glorious. I wish I'd had iNaturalist so that I could have, and hopefully if anyone's listening and about to do the PCT this year, get iNaturalist. I mean, there's so many species that you see along the trail that I didn't know what they were. One of the things um, that I felt ambivalent about, which I'm still not quite sure where I am around, is the naming and appropriation of nature somehow by naming these things around us on the trail. I felt this like someone has spent time getting the Latin name for each and every living thing out there. And somehow by claiming it as our own through naming it, I felt, I felt kind of weird when you're talking about doing it through iNaturalist makes me feel good. Like, but somehow, I don't know, it made it made me feel like we're appropriating nature. Naming helps you put these species on a tree of life and to understand what they're related to and what their life histories are. And and so it's important actually to do that it. part seems good. The the part that I worry about is the ego that we invest in and the and the process of by naming something, suddenly we become better than it. I mean, one of the things that that I find inspiring about citizen science, it kind of turned the tables on the individual scientist, male person owning it, and it distributes it in a more democratic way. And it doesn't feel so much like we're owning nature, but we really are inquiring and trying to support the regrowth. Tell us a little bit about 
how iNaturalist as an app was developed and how people could use it. So iNaturalist is a great um, entry into citizen science because you can just do this yourself. So what you do with the app is you take a picture of a species that you see on your walk, on your hike. So a butterfly, let's say. A butterfly, a bird, a mountain lion. I mean, it's hard to capture some of these. Well, let's just say it's a butterfly because you're writing it's a butterfly. And let's say that I took the picture and I have which would be the case, no idea what kind of butterfly it is. How, what would I do next? So here's the fun thing that happens next. There's actually an artificial intelligence component wow. of iNaturalist. Love that. It's really cool. So when you take the picture, a little thing slides up and says, do you want help with this ID? So I say, yes, and please. And you say, yes. And then the machine learning thing goes through its thing and gives you suggestions of what it look of what it thinks it might be. So you select one of those. And and sometimes it'll say similar species seen nearby. So the machine knows that this species has been seen where you are. So it's very likely that it's that. So that, you know, well, let's say let's say there was two yellow mottled spotted butterfly and I couldn't tell exactly which. Like, are there, would it put me in touch with someone that would know, or what would I do? So what happens is, um, so for example, if you said, this is an Eastern pipevine swallowtail butterfly, but you're in California, the machine's going to go like, no, no, it's not. It's probably a Western pipevine swallowtail butterfly. And you click that. Then that observation gets uploaded to this database, to this, it's a feed that's like a Facebook feed of all of these observations that people take. And there's a, there's the crowd, the community of iNaturalist users, not only make observations, but they also make verifications of other people's observations. You can really traverse the world and see what's been seen. Um, so that's super fun. I also love how it, I mean, people feel so frustrated and, and unconnected to nature, and they often feel, I know I, I know I do, that you have to go somewhere else. We are talking about this, that the place of nature is somewhere else. And the environmental movement kind of taught us that, that if we want to protect nature, it's Yosemite, it's the Arctic, it's Africa, it isn't our neighborhood. But this is so cool because it, it connects you, it makes me think about what's around me, and then it connects you to a global world of people looking at those same issues, which is so different than joining an environmental organization they tell you the world's going to hell in a handbasket and then signing petitions and sending money. This is this is really empowering. So when I feel despair about the environment, you know, it just really makes me double down to me observing this moment now is seeding the future and doing what I can to help the future have have a beautiful life unfold as our life is beautiful and unfolding. Thank you, Mary Ellen. Thanks, Jared. Thanks to Mary Ellen, Bill, Izzy, Margaret, and Brian for not only being active citizen scientists, but for sharing their passion with us today. What I took away from today's episode is that each of us can play a pivotal role in recording the world around us. This will both help reconnect us to the natural world and help us save it. If you go to the webpage for this episode, you will find the links to hundreds of citizen science projects you can engage with today. I also put a link to the iNaturalist app, which I just tried out. I was blown away by how easy to use it was and how cool it is. 
In next week's episode, we'll travel to the San Joaquin Valley and to Marin County to look at how farmers are joining the front lines of environmental protection by using soil to absorb and permanently store massive amounts of carbon dioxide. Please like the Podship Earth pages on Facebook and Instagram and check out my first Podship Earth video. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, editor Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jared Blumenfeld. Have an excellent week. 